So today we're continuing with our, our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling this sermon series The Cross and, and the Crown. And today uh, we actually only have three more weeks in the Gospel of Mark, and today we're looking at the passage that really is Jesus' last meal. This is Jesus' last supper that he shares before he dies upon uh, the cross. And so as we get into this passage, I want us to really look at what it means to be devoted to Jesus, uh, where, where we are looking at our motivation for following Jesus. But before we get into this, as one of the things that we will be touching upon as well is just really the, the practice of, of partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments within uh, the, the, the church. And, like, uh, it's, it's imp- and this is actually really a, for more or less, a distinctive of our church life because we practice weekly communion. And so the, one of the, the hopes I have for this time as we look at Mark 14 is really to, to have a concrete understanding of why we come to the Lord's table why we come to the Lord's table? Why are we uh, practicing weekly communion? And so without further ado, let's uh, jump into God's word. We're looking at Mark 14, verses 3 through 25. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you be with us now as we look at your word. May your spirit be at work in our hearts, that we would uh, see your love, see your grace to us, and that we would also see our great need for you as well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So as we're looking at this text today, um, as we're looking at the Jesus' last meal, uh, the question I want us to highlight today is what is our motivation in following Jesus Christ? Because the, the passage that we read today actually gives us a contrast of two disciples. On one hand, we have this woman, and we'll look at her in depth in a moment, but we also have Judas. And these two people are put are presented to us side by side as a contrast. Mark, the author of this gospel, wants us to consider why do we follow Jesus Christ. And so that's the whole idea for today. Why do you follow Jesus Christ? And so by by way of points, we have three points today. But the first point I want us to really lean in is the, the idea of discipleship, where we see these two these two disciples contrasted with one another. So on one hand, we have this woman and then Judas. So let's dive into this contrast. So right away, as, we're, as we see in our text, that Jesus is at Bethany and he is eating a meal. And it's always interesting to me, on a side note, that it's really interesting to me to notice how the gospel writers organize and structure their, their books. So Mark is here, Mark 14, he, he starts out after the triumphal entry, he, he goes in and he says, hey, um, they're at a meal in Bethany and a woman comes up and anoints Jesus with alabaster on his head. It's clearly preparation for Jesus' burial. That's really the direction Mark's going with it. However, like you can see this also in Matthew, but you can also see this in John and the details in John are provide a lot more clarity. See, the events in John happen in John chapter 12. They are in Bethany. They are, they are at someone's house. And Mary is, is named. She comes to Jesus. She takes perfume. She anoints Jesus with it, not just his head, but also his feet. And like, so she, it, it's a very intimate moment. And, but then we see the disciples being uh, full of indignation. But, so it's, but the point that I'm making is that it's always interesting to me to see how the gospel writers use details like that to drive home a certain point. And so as we look at this text, it's in Mark, it's very helpful to, to us to know what's going on in John chapter 12. Because John tells us this woman is Mary. So this contrast that we see is Mary side by side and contrasted with Joseph. But 
uh, Mary is a very common name throughout the Gospels. So the question is, who, which specific Mary? Because there's the Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And that's exactly who it is. It's the Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. In John's gospel, we actually see just how intimate this relationship that Jesus has with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Because in John 11, Lazarus dies. Jesus hears of this, and he comes and performs this marvelous miracle of resurrection, bringing Lazarus back from the grave. And so Mary, the very next chapter, is overwhelmed with a heart of gratitude. She's thankful for what Jesus has done. And so she takes this perfume and pours it over Jesus' head and feet. Simply put, this is an act of devotion. And, And Jesus truly captures just the weight of Mary's devotion. He recognizes that this is a costly thing and that, Jesus, that Mary is demonstrating her love for Jesus. Now, but as we look at this act of devotion, if you know the gospel accounts well, perhaps there's another gospel account that's in the back of your mind that perhaps this feels a little similar to. Um, there's a dinner served at, uh, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And in the, the Gospel of Luke, they're at uh, a Pharisee's house. And Jesus is there as a guest. Now, Jesus, in Jesus' day, everyone wanted, everyone wanted access to Jesus. Everyone wanted to be able to spend time with him to ask questions. Everyone wanted that type of proximity. But as Jesus is there at, the, at Simon the Pharisee's house, but what we realize is that G- the Simon, the host, never actually greeted Jesus, never asked him, hey, where can I hang up your cloak? Never washed his feet. Simon never showed Jesus the type of hospitality or devotion that disciples would. But what we see here is that Mary is showing devotion upon devotion to Jesus. In this text in Mark 14, this dinner is served at Simon the leper's home. And Mary comes up to Jesus with this jar of expensive perfume. He pours it. She pours it over his head. But she doesn't just pour it. Like, you know, when you go to pour some water, you, t- you grab the pitcher and you pour it out. That's not wh- how Mark describes it. Like, sh- she breaks this jar, alabaster jar. And so the, uh, the picture that I want you to have in mind is to take a jar and just squeeze it. And it breaks and all the oil comes down on Jesus. Like, she's not getting any ounce of this oil back. She is spending it all on Jesus. She doesn't dip her finger in it and anoint him. She doesn't just pour it in in the palm of her hand and put it on him. She breaks it and let it ooze upon him. She uses it all up on Jesus. And so Jesus Jesus recognizes this. In verse 6, he says, She has done a beautiful thing for me. This is truly a picture of devotion. See, Mary, unlike Simon the Pharisee in in Luke 7, or even unlike Judas, Mary wants Jesus for Jesus. She wants to know Jesus. She wants to spend time with Jesus. She wants to, to love Jesus. That's where she's coming from. And that stands in stark contrast to, to others who just want access to him. 
People who just want to ask Jesus questions. Because just to point it out, access does not mean friendship. Being able to ask questions and listening is not devotion. But here's Mary, and we see a picture of devotion. We see this picture of devotion, and she's willing to spend things, to use things that are valuable on Jesus. And so we, we see this in Mark 14, where the disciples reply, and so they are full of indignation. And they reply, um, why didn't you sell that perfume and give the money to the poor? Because that is worth 300 denarii. Now, 300 denarii, that's not how we talk. But just put it this way. 300 denarii is the salary that you would earn over 300 days. So to put it in contrast, this is nine months salary. That's how much money she just spent on Jesus. And it's just as an act of thankfulness and gratitude and devotion. That's what Mary is doing here. And so this, the disciples see this. Some of their, them are full of indignation, and they scolded her. And again, John 12 provides some clarity here. John actually pinpoints the, the disciple who's leading the criticism, leading the scolding, and it's Judas. Judas says in, says this, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John adds this. He adds the motive behind Judas's words. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had charged the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. So literally Judas is embezzling money from Jesus and the disciples. That's what we learned from right there. But So let's look at Judas now. <coughs> Let's look at Judas now. So pivoting away from Mary and looking at Judas. Because what we see in terms of like points where we're at right now is that we see Mary's devotion to Jesus. But now we see Judas's use of, of Jesus. She, Judas followed Jesus not out of a love for him, not out of a devotion to him. But Judas looks at Jesus and simply sees a means to an end. Judas loved money. He expected Jesus to be um, the Messiah. And this is something that we have hit over and over and over again as we look throughout uh, Mark's gospel. And he expected Jesus to be a Messiah. But as we've said, as I've shared, is that there are a lot of different messianic expectations. Put it differently. A lot of people expect different things of the Messiah. And so Judas, by following Jesus, was following Jesus because he was playing the long game to get rich. Is that he's looking at Jesus. Perhaps he's thinking that he is a revolutionary, a zealot, someone who's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to come to the throne. He's going to come to power and he's going to begin to reward people all around him. Perhaps that's what he's thinking. But something happens here and it's pretty clear for us in Mark 14. That Judas realized before any other disciple that Jesus was not going to become the king in Jerusalem as we understand it. That Jesus was not going to be a, become a king like David where he's going to sit on a throne in a palace in Jerusalem where he's going to have a sword and a scepter. Jesus was not going to be that type of king. And in fact, we see this is that as Jesus 
responds to the disciples' indignation. He, he, he loves, he affirms, he praises Mary. He says, everywhere that other disciples are devoted to me, people are going to remember Mary's active devotion to me. He actually rebukes Judas and the, these other disciples who are full of indignation. And it's at that point where Judas goes on to betray Jesus. So in other words, just to make it very clear, Judas, before any other disciple realized that Jesus was going to die on the cross, and his first thing he did is betray him. Judas is the one who realized that Jesus is the Christ who is going to suffer and die on the cross, and he betrayed him. That is what Judas did. He, Jesus was not going to become the king of Israel that the zealots, zealots hoped for. He's not going to become the king uh, or he's not going to be a religious leader that's going to lead a type of revival or reformation that the Pharisees hoped for. He was going to suffer. And no one who followed him was going to get rich. So Judas betrayed him. He goes to the chief priest and betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And those 30 per pieces of silver, perhaps you're wondering, why 30 pieces of silver? But in the ancient days, 30 pieces of silver was the standard price that you would pay for a slave. That is, so that really helps us understand that Judas looks at Jesus and sees someone simply to use to, to get rich quick or to get, just to get rich. So Judas betrayed him. And this is, this is a story of betrayal. And we have many stories of betrayal all around us. Consider this. Aldrich Ames worked for the CIA during the 1980s. He worked for the CIA and he sold U.S. government secrets and military intelligence to the Soviet Union during the 1980s. Specifically, this, the intelligence he gave them included military intelligence, but also the names of every U.S. agent in operation against Russia. As a result of, of his, his treason... Ten agents were executed. A hundred military operations were compromised. So the question that would linger is, why would, did he do this? Was he forced to betray his, his country? Was he forced to betray the country that he actually swore to protect? The answer is no. He actually earned $4.6 million, which supported his alcohol addiction, as well as his lavish lifestyle. Instead of loving his country, he actually, he, yeah, sure, he loved his country, but he loved his country to support his love for his lavish lifestyle and alcohol. Now, at this point, let me just point out that we as people are pretty complex. We have emotions, bodies, desires, and more. We're born as sinners in a fallen world. We grow up in a particular family structure and dynamic and culture. And so we need, if we want to grow, we need to understand our family of origin. We need to understand our culture and our ethnic identity. But all these things are true. Everything I just said is true. We are very complex, but we're not as complex as we like to think. Philosopher James K.A. Smith wrote a book by this title, and he really sums up the human condition. And his title is, You Are What You Love. You are what you love. See, we see this in both Mary. We also see this in, in Judas. But Jesus would put it differently than James Smith did. He said that out of the heart, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. 
And so what we see in both Mary and Judas, we see how they tick. We see how they operate. Mary is driven by a devotion to Jesus. Judas is driven because he simply wants to use Jesus, because he is devoted to other things. And so likewise, here's the question that you need to reckon with. Why do you follow Jesus? What is the motive behind your discipleship? Are you following Jesus out of a devotion to him? Or are you simply using Jesus? And I ask this question because here in the uh, America, in our cultural moment, as I, as I look across the, the entire country, I can look to various religious leaders and, and teachers and where they are actually advocating that God is here to be used. So perhaps you've heard this one book, and it's entitled Your Best Life Now. And that book argues that God wants you to have your, have your best life now. And that life is defined by being happy, by having joy, by having success, by having wealth, and, and by getting ahead. That's just one example. But here's another example, and this has been something that has uh, really emerged in, in, uh, in recent weeks. Uh, because, and like on one hand, the example I just gave is called the prosperity gospel, and it's attached to uh, health and wealth. But it doesn't just have to be attached to health and wealth. It could be attached to other things. And the second example that I'm, I'm getting into here is that perhaps you grew up in the church and you came of age in the 90s and in the early millennium. And if so, you may have been exposed to this thing called purity culture. Purity culture is a term for teachings that stress abstinence before marriage. And there's a whole culture to this where you have purity balls purity pledges, and purity rings. And there was this one writer, Abigail Murish. She grew up amid this purity culture, and, and she found just how, to, how it distorted the Christian faith for her. And so while she's at Purdue University, everything came to a head, and it's during her freshman year. And she shared her story recently in Christianity Today. And it's rather lengthy, and so I'll summarize, and summarize it for you uh, and, but the whole article is fantastic. And if you would like to learn, read it in its entirety, just ask me and I'll send you the link. But she gets into her story, and this is what she shares. And she talks about her freshman year, and she gets into some dynamics on it. And she says that when friends arrived on, at class on Monday morning, tired from a weekend of partying, I was distinctly aware that my heartfelt Christian convictions about sex separated me from their group. I counted many of my classmates and doormates as friends, and although they never mocked me or ostracized me for my beliefs, nonetheless, I felt a sense of otherness. I had anticipated this loneliness in going to Purdue, but I had not fully anticipated my freshman year would be the loneliest of my life. Although I experienced the Lord's comforting presence and Sunday church services provided a sweet reprieve from the grind of college, I still longed for more community. I hoped God would lessen my loneliness by giving me a boyfriend who would eventually become my husband, and I prayed toward that end. I'd meet a kind Christian man and wonder if he was the one. 
We'd get to know one another as friends and maybe go out for a meal, but before long, he would stop communicating with me or express interest in another woman. Amid these ups and downs of my romantic life, I found myself captivated by someone else, the bride of Christ. This realization came, she, she goes on saying, I'll paraphrase these words, but she had a realization in this moment. As my dating life floundered, I began to see that I traded one set of biblical, unbiblical views of sex for another. And this realization came slowly over time. The purity culture that I embraced in high school was just as insufficient and empty as hookup culture. I realized that I was following Jesus, and I realized that as I followed Jesus, I also believed that if I obeyed him, then he would reward me with a husband and have kids. But God never makes such a promise. And so what Abigail Murray discovered is that she was following Jesus, using Jesus to get a husband. See, there are so many different ways that we can use Jesus to get ahead in life. We can use Jesus to get ahead uh, and have success, to have financial success. To, we can use Jesus for health. We can use Jesus to, for, to find a partner and so much more. So why do we follow Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? This brings us to the third point. The third point is Jesus' grace. The events that, uh, that we are looking at takes place during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is also known by a different name. It's all known as the Passover. And in the Old Testament, the Passover was the communal feast that all of Israel celebrated together. But it's a feast. It was established during the events of, of the Exodus, where God physically literally liberated his people out of slavery in Egypt. So Jesus is sharing his meal with his disciples. Peter's there. James is there. Judas is there. And during the course of the meal, Jesus says to them, one of you is going to betray me. This is striking. Because Jesus does not say this in a, in a way that the character, the white witch in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia did. And the white witch in Narnia, she says, one of you is a traitor and there he is. That's what the white witch did. Jesus does not out Judas. Jesus does not shame Jesus. Instead, he poses this question so his disciples would ask a very different culture. His disciples aren't, don't ask the question, is it you? Is it you? They ask, is it me? This is striking because none of the disciples knew the obvious answer. None of the disciples asked, is it Jesus? They asked if it was themselves. And at this point, we need to point out that Jesus is actually surrounded by people who would abandon him, people who would betray him. For example, um, Peter. Uh, Peter is told that, hey, you're going to deny me before I die. That Jesus tells Peter this. Peter says, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. And he, Peter goes on to deny Jesus three times. And then also, we, we see John. 
John is known as the apostle, who, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is Jesus' best friend. And while Jesus is arrested, he's taken off to the kangaroo trial uh, that he's going to face. John is following, but John is following them at a distance. But when someone turns around and notices that they're being followed, that John's following them, John turns around and runs away. He drops his coat. The simple point I'm making is that every single person surrounding Jesus abandoned him before he would die. They would not even stay awake when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and encourage him as he is praying. And even later after Jesus died, none of these disciples offered a tomb for Jesus. None of these disciples, in fact, would carry Jesus' cross onto the Calvary. Each of these disciples recognized an important truth. And this truth is actually something that every single one of us needs to hold on to. The truth is that they also had the potential for betraying Jesus. That's a sad and sober truth. That every single one of us here in this room can, should see ourselves as betraying Jesus. And let me encourage you here. If you actually look in your life and you can see yourself betraying Jesus, you're in good company. There's Peter, there's James, there's John. There, this entire table that Jesus eats with are also sinners and rebels and traitors as well. Each and every single one of us has a traitor inside of us. And the point that we see here that is, in fact, lived out step by step by step is that Jesus extends his friendship to us. That is sheer, pure grace. And that is why we follow Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus Christ because of his love for us. We follow Jesus for his love and his love alone. Mary knows Jesus' love firsthand. She saw her brother raised from the dead. And so she, her heart is full of gratitude. Her heart, she realizes, I have my brother back. Who cares about a year's salary? I don't want to just show Jesus how much I love him. Mary knows Jesus' love firsthand. She knows Jesus' grace. She witnessed it, just like Judas did. But she also experienced it. Her brother Lazarus died, and Jesus rose him from the dead. And so when Mary anoints his head and his feet, we see that she is devoted to Jesus. We see her love for Jesus. Her love is rooted in thankfulness to Jesus for his love for her. And there's another theological point that I want to highlight, and, and that's the, the events of this meal actually institute the Lord's Supper. The, this is a, a sacrament. It's a, one of the two sacraments within the Christian faith right alongside baptism. And we see Jesus doing, being baptized. We see Jesus partaking of the Lord's Supper, and he also commands us as his church to do the same things. And and a sacrament, both, yes, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both sacraments are a picture of God's grace given to you. And so as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper, we are actually demonstrating that as we come down this aisle, we are demonstrating we are traitors, we are rebels. There's nothing in our hands that we can bring to the table. The only thing that we can bring to this table is that we need Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that we 
bring to this table as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper. We are bringing ourselves. And so earlier, before we even got into Scripture, I, I shared that we practice weekly communion. And, and the reason simply is, is that we need grace. And I recognize that churches across the entire church, congregations across the entri- entire church practice things differently. For example, if you have a crazier story than this, I want to hear it. But so I grew up in a, in a tradition where we would only celebrate the Lord's Supper twice a year. Perhaps you're thinking, hey, so did I. Cool. So the church tradition I grew up in would actually say, well, before you come to the Lord's Supper, you need to uh, prepare yourself. And so as a church, there were midweek services called preparatory services where you would have to come and prepare yourself because, you know what, if you have any unconfessed sin, you can't come and partake of the table. And so, in fact, this tradition, the church tradition I grew up in, is that if you would go and partake in, uh, and go to these preparatory services, you would get a communion token. And so then, like, when you come forward and come down the aisle, you give your token, and then, like, hey, here's my token. I've prepared myself. I'm ready to partake in the, the, the bread and the wine. That's not what's going on in here. The re- the, literally, you, you can come forward and... There's no, nothing in your hands you bring. You don't, you're not bringing anything in your hands. You're not bringing a token and saying, like, hey, I'm ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. The truth is, we're all here, traitors, rebels, and sinners, and we're coming to the Lord's table because we are following Jesus Christ, not because we've prepared ourselves. We're not following Jesus Christ because of our religious performance. We're not coming um, to the Lord's Supper because of our theological knowledge or our background. We're coming to this table simply because we are loved by God, and that's it. We are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. And so the beautiful thing is that Jesus is a different kind of king, and he calls us to, he, and Jesus freely gives himself to you, freely I liked how one of my favorite books is by Graham Tomlin. And Graham Tomlin puts it this way. This is a king like no other. And in Jesus' kingdom, a very different set of values reign. The kingdom is not recognized by the usual marks of human rule, which would be ostentatious wealth and status. Instead, Jesus' kingdom is marked by the presence of meekness, mercy, poverty, purity of heart, Generosity, kindness, love, and forgiveness. And the central symbol of Jesus' kingdom is a meal where people from all corners of the earth are invited to sit down together in welcome and delight. Let me close just with this one short story. Rembrandt is a famous Dutch artist, and he was fascinated by Leonardo da Vinci's mural. It was the Last Supper. And so Rembrandt himself sketched a copy of that mural with a little variations. And while he recast all the details of the, of the Lord's Supper very accurately, and this is a red chalk sketch, he vividly highlights their reaction to Jesus' words. And as Rembrandt is, is sketching this piece, he makes one alteration. He actually draws himself into this red chalk drawing. So in a sense, this is a, side, this is a self-portrait. 
And so if you look at his sketch, you would be wondering, where is he? Where is he? And you would see him uh, from the left. He is fifth from the left, and you only see the side of his face. But he's there, sitting in the place of Judas. When you come to this table, you're coming to this table as a traitor. You're you're coming to this table as a rebel and a sinner, and you know this about yourself. But as you come to this table, you know an even greater truth. You know a truth that actually defines your life story in a greater way. And this story is of God's love for you. So as you come to this table, yes, you come as a sinner, but you come as a forgiven sinner. Because this table is a picture of, uh, of Christ's body broken for you. It's a picture of his blood shed for you in the forgiveness of your sins. And so as you come to this table, know that as you come to this table, you are admitting something very profound that you are following Jesus because of his grace and out of his love for you. So friends, while our sin is deep, God's love for you is even deeper still. Let's pray.